Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hello, friends. We are so happy to welcome author, illustrator, and graphic novelist Whitney Gardner to the podcast. In this episode, we talk about plotting, pantsing, graphic novels, working with multiple agents, succeeding against trend. Yes, there are some vampires in this episode. And we couldn't help it how to roast, grind, and perfect your own coffee. Enjoy. We're so happy you're here. You've worked on so many interesting things from an RBG book to one that's described as a preteen crush, a tranquil woodsy neighborhood in the Pacific Northwest and vampires to your newest book, which was set in camp with mysterious happenings. How do you decide what you're going to work on? Oh my goodness. So many books. I think most of the time I want to, it's the books that like, don't leave me alone. And they Mm. nag me all the time. And they're like constantly in the back of my mind being like, but what if this happened? But what if this happened? I'm like, no, I would think I want to work on something else and just keeps coming back and coming back. I'm like, okay, fine. I hear you. Let's do this. So with that, with those voices, (laughs) tell me about your creative process. How do you like corral up the ideas and get them on the page? So I'm a huge plotter, outliner. I like to try and nail down everything that's going to happen in a story first, because it makes facing the blank page of like the first draft a little less terrifying because you're like, I have a map. I know what's coming next. And most of the time I don't end up following the map that I've laid, but it's a really nice safety net to have Mm -hmm. there. So you're a mix of a plotter and a pantser where you plot it out and then you're like, wow, this is more fun to be in this space over here. Or so it's that wild thing when you like get into flow and you're like trying to work and then all of a sudden the characters are saying things you didn't expect them to say and you're like, oh, oh, okay, I guess we're going here now. Talk to us about flow because we had Julie Falaco on a couple episodes ago. She had these great ideas and how to hold and create creative flow. Flow is this kind of like magical space that I feel like you can't force it to happen. When I'm drawing, because I'm a graphic novelist, it happens very quickly. I like sit down to draw. I can tune out the world and just go to work. But when it's drafting, I feel like I need to force myself to get into that headspace. And I use what's called the Pomodoro technique. Mm. Have you heard of this? Yeah, I've seen the little tomato timers too. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. You like set a timer for 25 minutes and you say, okay, there's no phone. There's no anything. There's no email. It's just me and the the words for 25 minutes. Anyone can do anything for 25 minutes. And sometimes you leave the timer ticking in the back and it tricks your brain into thinking like almost like a metronome. Mm. Oh, I'm working on this right now. And like this, the ticking sound means work is happening. And the first session that I always do, the first 25 minutes is always brutal. But then once you get used to it, it kicks in and then it's easier to block everything out and let the work just wash over you. You're also an art teacher, right? I was. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any lessons you have from those days that might be useful to our listeners now? I get a little too caught up in, or at least now I get caught up in feeling like this is my job. This is my work. This is my responsibility and all. And I think when I was an art teacher, things just seemed a little more like 
fun and jovial and who cares? And, oh, you did a great job. And, oh, it's crayons and not fancy equipment or anything like that. And I think sometimes it's nice to remind myself, like, art can still have that joy and fun if you tune out the industry a little bit. (laughs) As an art teacher, I think that you're molding creatives. Right. And you're, now you're consistently molding yourself and your own expectations of yourself. And I think it's, we're so much kinder to students than we are to our own self. <laughs> I guess that's so true. It's, oh, I would look at any of my students' artwork and be like, this is incredible. Just keep going. Everything's fine. Mistakes happen. That's why we have erasers. Who cares? But meanwhile, <laughs> I'll like, sit at my desk and be like, this is terrible. Wow. Oh. You know, like, <laughs> So maybe I need to like remind myself, be more of a teacher to myself sometimes. If you figure out a way to do it, please let us know. (laughs) Right. Of course. It's easy to say. Kind of allude to the fact that maybe writing comes first, or do you find yourself just constantly illustrating characters and seeing which character speaks to you? The writing part comes first, which is bizarre to me. Because I went to art school and I thought, I'm going to be an illustrator. I'm going to illustrate picture books. That's going to be my jam. Mm -hmm. And I'm not good at writing. I can't come up with stories. Let somebody else do that and I'll just make it pretty. Mm -hmm. But it was really hard to break in as an illustrator waiting around for an editor to pair you up with a story that they thought matches your art style and competing with other illustrators. They don't know me. How are they going to know to choose me to illustrate somebody's book? And after a while, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to have to do it both. I'm going to have to learn how to write and I'm going to have to do it all myself. And that's how I ended up where I am now. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about how that works for those at home who are interested in being an illustrator and getting illustration? I've only ever illustrated one project that I didn't write. Mm. And that was the RBG graphic novel biography. And that happened because my editor from Fake Blood had worked with the author on a picture book and she knew that I had done graphic novels and she thought, oh, this might be a good pairing. Mm. And so I did a bunch of drawings of Ruth through all the stages of her life and uh, a few scenes of things that she had done as a child to say, look, we could do this. We could make it a graphic novel. It could be very cute. And then they Mm -hmm. took that in and decided to go ahead with the project. That must've been so cool to work on. It was a lot of work. She's done a lot in her life. (laughs) And what a humbling experience, right? Oh my goodness. It was like, going to work and spending my day with Ruth Bader Ginsburg every day for a few hours was just, okay, she's done so much. I'm sitting here drawing. Okay, we can make this happen for Ruth. I think that's one of those opportunities that you think to yourself as a kid, it's the coolest thing I'm going to do. And then you're like, oh, you couldn't even think (laughs) something that cool. It's amazing. (laughs) Towards like the nitty gritty of like publishing, how did you find your agent? And what were you looking for in a creative partner? I've had multiple agents, different agents for, I think, different phases of my career. My first agent and I didn't sell any projects together and it just ended up not being a good fit. And then I found an amazing agent who supported me and sold most of my projects and they were lovely. But then once I wanted to start focusing more on graphic novels and I The more graphic novels I made, the more I felt like this is where my heart is. Mm. I needed to find somebody who specialized in that and would help support me 
through this new leg of my brighter artist journey. And this is proof too, that I think a lot of people are so afraid of what happens if it doesn't work out with the first agent. It didn't work out with two agents for you and you're doing great. So it's nice to know that it's not the end of the world if that happens. And it's not even that it, sometimes it doesn't work out. And sometimes you just have decided to drive down different roads, like ships passing in the night feeling where it's just, we've taken this relationship as far as we can. And I wish you the best. And then you move on and there's hopefully no hard feelings and it's okay. You said once that you should get yourself an agent who will allow you to plan for world domination from time to time. Can you talk more about that? Who doesn't want to dominate their little corner of the publishing world just every now and again? (laughs) Not all the time, but just every once in a while. And I think sometimes it's nice to know that the agent who's representing you is in your corner and thinks you're a superstar (laughs) so Mm -hmm. that every now and like I was saying before, maybe I should be more of a teacher to myself and be kinder to myself. And sometimes it's nice to have an agent to say, no, Whitney, this is actually wonderful or hype you up a little bit. And then once you have that like little bit of wind under your sails, it can push you to finish or make your project that much better because you want to impress this person who has decided to represent you. I do like the idea of world domination by a creative though. I'm still, I'm not there yet. I'm still trying. So you wrote a children's book about vampires in 2014 and presumably got some rejections, but it still worked out. Do you have any advice on succeeding against trend cycles? If you want to write a book about vampires in 2014, because (laughs) you can't stop thinking about it and it is your heart, you just then you have to write it. It wasn't so much about, I'm going to write about vampires because they're trendy, or I'm not going to write about them because they're not trendy. I just thought of this story and I had to do it. And I thought vampires have been around forever. They have to make a comeback at some point. And yes, people did look at me like I had 20 heads and definitely had a lot of comments where They'd be like, oh, you write for children's books? Are you writing about vampires? And I'd be like, yes, actually, I am. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I thought of the idea for fake blood in 2008. And then many years later, like the hook, the twist slammed me as I was walking down the street, the thing. I'm like, oh, that's what that idea is actually about. And then I had to write it. And it didn't matter that it was out of fashion. I just thought, nope. This has to, I have to make it. No. And I think I love that you seem to be a very intuitive artist and that you just really listen to that inner voice. And I have this theory that those inner voices, like you can cultivate them. Like, how do you like feed that voice or feed the negative doubts that you might get after a story like that? I'm not sure about the negative doubts because those definitely still crop up and I'm still trying to figure out how to deal with them. But I'm the kind of person, or at least when I think about like my instinct or my gut or listening to the voices that are like telling me which story to write, however you want to phrase it. I think about a story for a really long time before I end up writing it. I like, I feel like it's like a rock in my hand that I'm just like turning over and turning over until it's smooth and I know it. I wish sometimes that I was the kind of writer who has a bunch of ideas and like the work in progress ideas just come in and come in. They're like, Oh, I have a long list of books that I want to write. But for me, sometimes it's just two that have been hanging out in the back of my mind for however long. And sometimes that scares me. And I'm like, this is not enough. What if I can't do these two books? 
But then I take time and I just try to be quiet and listen. And I put on nature sounds or like I will allow myself to not listen to podcasts, which is all I do when I draw. I just try to tune out the noise of the world. I find that a lot of my gut feelings come in the shower. And so I have a, a waterproof notebook in there. <laughs> what is that? Why does that happen? Oh, I cool. think it's because it's, you literally it's can't, like I can't take my phone in the shower. Okay. That too, we could say that, but I can't take my phone in the shower. I can't have a show like a TV show going on in the background. I'm not playing music. I'm just like standing there with my thoughts or not. And then all of a sudden a problem will get solved or mm. an idea will come. I think that like most of the time, if I need to figure out something in a story or listen to a voice, I have to just tune out everything else. I'm telling you, nature sounds are incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Which ones in particular? (laughs) Okay. There's there. Yeah. See, there's a a category of nature sounds on Spotify called echoes of nature. And Mm -hmm. I love it. (laughs) There's a one that's a bunch of just frogs which is extremely hilarious because you start listening to it and you're just like, what am I doing listening to frogs? And then 10 minutes later, you're into it. Mm -hmm. And then it fades away. It becomes this like white noise. You're like, wait a minute. Okay. Okay. I'm figuring it out. Things are coming to me. Things are falling into place. Thank you, frogs. (laughs) (laughs) I think there are some theories around, I'm not sure I'm going to say esophageal toning that you find in nature that actually does activate brain patterns. Mm -hmm. So it's fascinating. And I feel like that there's something about the hand and the brain connection too, that as we work on computers, sometimes we lose that. Do you draw out by hand or do you do digital drawing? How does that work for you? I start out for graphic novels. I'll start doing what's called thumbnails, which is like tiny little quick sketches of every page in the book Mm -hmm. as like a map. And I do those on paper because it just gets me away from the computer. I'm just thinking about the book and where the page turns happen and all that kind of weird comic book math. But then I do everything else, refining and all of that on either an iPad or my Wacom tablet, because it's just so much easier to edit art that way. It doesn't make it completely easy. It doesn't take out all of the work, but if editors want to change things, it's much easier to do it on a tablet than redrawing a whole page on paper. What's the creative process like with your editor? I write the whole graphic novel first. I write it like a movie script. Not every graphic novelist does it like this, but that's how I like to do it. And then my editor and I will go back and forth in the script to make sure everything is looking good, whatever they want their input to be. And we nail it all down in the script before I ever start drawing because editing drawing is so much harder than editing words on paper. I try to make sure that we get it really locked in before I start drawing. And then I will send the sketches to my editor one chapter at a time, and she will look them over with the art director, and they will give me back their notes on that. And hopefully they won't be too extensive at that point. What are some things you wish you knew when you started? I'm sure that a lot of writers will say this, but when I started, I thought, oh, all I need is an agent. And then it's all I need is an editor to fall in love with the book. 
And then my book comes out and then all my problems are solved. And then I am an author and everything is wonderful. (laughs) And to an extent, yes, it is like your first book comes out and everything is wonderful, but then you have to do it all over again and do it all over again. And sometimes I feel like I wish I was more prepared for this to feel like a job, like a career and less like this, like magical thing because mm-hmm. the, the magic is wonderful, but I do wish I had somebody like put their arm around me and be like, magic is great, but this is also a job. And some days it's going to feel like really hard work and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> do you think even magicians go to work some days and they're like, oh, not again? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, right? I, they would have to. <laughs> so tired of spells. If spells are stupid. Ask me, what's in my hat? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it like does the trick and it's like, great, huh? You all saw me do it. Hooray. Like for the 50th time this week, I'm pulling the rabbit out. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's a lot to ask any brain to come into work every day and be a genius. <laughs> right. right. I think when you're a teacher, you're like, I'm going to go into work and I'm going to make sure no one kills each other, or I'm going to make sure <laughs> you know what I mean? like that with your expectations. And then as a writer, you're like, I will genius today and I will genius again tomorrow and the next day. Am I genius enough? Is this enough genius? Like, right. I write these yeah. goofy books about like vampires and aliens and even sillier things on the horizon, but just sometimes you're like, are people going to take me seriously? Even though I write about all these goofy things, do I want to be taken seriously? There's all these conversations in my mm-hmm. mind about what is legitimate or genius enough. Oh, know? that's nice. So what do you, this is ridiculous, but in another world that's coming where you have like a cocktail party or a barbecue and someone says, what do you, and you say, I'm an author. And they're like, oh, what do you write about? And then how do you describe it? I normally say that I'm a graphic novelist and people are like, what does that mean? And you're like, oh, I write comic books. And then they do a big eye roll and they say like, when are you going to write real books? I'm like, I also have real books, quote unquote, real books. All my books are real though. But I think it's fun to be like, I write about aliens. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) So cool. And you know, and I think this is, I think your answer should be like, yeah, I wrote, I do like, I read about magic every day and Ruth Bader Ginsburg (laughs) and vampires. You (laughs) (laughs) yeah, all these things. I think what you're saying here is like the movement from like a traditional job to a job like this is an interesting pivot, even though it's in some ways the same kind of like core idea. Right. How do you keep yourself feeling good enough? Like what kind of, I hate the term self-care, but what do you do to keep it yourself in a place where there are good odds of showing up being the best version of you when you start working? Shout out to my therapist. I go to therapy. (laughs) That's one thing that I've started doing that I really enjoy and love and keeps me feeling pretty grounded and better. Mm -hmm. So that is very useful. And if you have the means to do it, I highly recommend it. I meet with her over Zoom. It's great. I was meeting with her before the pandemic and we would always just meet online. And now I'm like, okay, this doesn't have to change. That's good. Other than that, little things to, with that, oh, self-care things. Hmm. I try to do a lot of journaling and like art journaling. There's a moment in the office where Michael is confronting Dwight 
And he's, I didn't know you kept a diary. And Dwight says, I use it to keep secrets from my computer. And I've (laughs) never felt more like Dwight Schrute in my life in that moment. (laughs) Because that's what I do. Like I have all these journals and they're all very like cute and pretty. And I try to put art into them and make them look nice, but I will never put them on the internet because they are just for me and not for anyone's judgment. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes when you're having your art or your writing judged by your peers and librarians and Kirkus and whoever, and your editors and your agents, sometimes it's nice to just have that like little space to do your art. That's just for you and nobody else. Mm. What have you learned along the way? And what do you wish you knew when you started? I wish that I had kept in mind that this was more like this was going to turn into a job and less like a hobby over time. I wish I had paid more attention to that feeling in the beginning. I feel like I'm still learning. I actually really love that. I can't say like exactly what I've learned along the way other than every now and again, I feel like maybe I should step away. Maybe this isn't for me, but I keep going. And I feel like that's my takeaway right now Mm -hmm. is just keep going because this is something you love to do. And even on days where you feel like you don't love to do it, that feeling is temporary and it will come back around again. Just because I'm curious, you mentioned roasting your own coffee. How do you do that? I use a fresh roast SR 540. Ooh, what's that? It looks like, it almost looks like a popcorn popper, but it's like a little glass cylinder and has a very heavy vent on top to like really, because it gets very smoky if you let it while you roast the beans. I get green beans, which is like green coffee beans, pre-roasted coffee beans from the internet. I used to have a, when I lived in Portland, there was this little shop called Mr. Green Beans that I used to get them from. Shout out to those in Portland. Go to Mr. Green Beans if you want to roast your own coffee. And you put the green beans into the roaster. You like, there's some knobs on there. You fiddle with temperature. You watch it go from green to brown. The beans do this thing called like a crack when they start set, almost like a popcorn popping sound, but not quite as dramatic. And you uh, use that to judge like how dark you're going to roast the beans. So once you hear the crack, you're like, okay, if I let it go for this much longer after it's called first crack, Mm -hmm. then it's a medium. Or if we keep going, it's dark or all of that. But roast coffee at home. Do you set a little timer? I do it all with my eyes. Okay. Cool. Um, and I would say I, I've been looking up this machine as you were talking. <laughs> I was looking up the coffee. <laughs> Mr. Green Beans. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm on Mr. Green Beans website. Right we're, we're, we're frantically typing. I, I know. I'm like, how much does it cost? Can we yeah. give a bag away to a listener? I've also like, I've since people have been working at home more often and they don't go out to coffee as often since I do a ton of different, like I make lattes at home and all this stuff. I've been like giving people little like coffee boot camp lessons in DMs wow. on Twitter. <laughs> oh my goodness. People are like, my coffee sucks. And I'm like, hey, if you want to talk about it, slide into my DMs and I'll help you make good coffee at home. Doesn't can, have to be expensive. We'll figure can, can it out. Can you do a tiny version of that now? <laughs> and I'm okay, looking well, at coffee books online too. And I think there's something there for you for the adult. Okay. So if you're making coffee at home, I'd say to get Your best bet is to have a grinder, which instead of buying pre-ground beans, Mm -hmm. 
So that's like your first little step up if you want to like up your coffee game and grind the beans right before you make your coffee. That helps. And the other thing that I tell people that doesn't have to be expensive to like up your coffee game is to get a milk frother. Hmm. It just makes your lattes or even ice lattes or whatever feel like slightly more luxurious to have that like silky, nice, frothy milk in there. Yeah, agree. They have the ones that look like immersion blenders now too, that look interesting. Yes, I'd, I'd say like that, if you're like nervous about jumping into like coffee gadgetry, this, these are why these are the two things that I ease people in with because it's not like a whole coffee machine or you don't have to get the $150 Nespresso milk frother. You can get the wand. It's okay. It'll work, you know? <laughs> I've also broken the more expensive ones with all the settings before, so... <laughs> Yeah, they're a little complicated. So I'm always trying to be like, okay, we don't have to dive in. I know there are so many coffee snobs in the world. I'm not like that at all. I like to put flavored syrups in my coffees and all of that. So I'm just trying to like help people make some good coffee (laughs) without judging their setups or anything. Do you have any tips about which ones to choose for those who can't roast at home? Stumptown is great. Mm, Yeah. Blue Bottle, also great. And if you're in Canada, 49th Parallel is wonderful. Mm. All right. Those are pretty easily available throughout. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to, I, I don't want to yeah. get too niche. I want to get you know, <laughs> give suggestions of things people could actually go and get. Yeah. I, I think those tasting notes are, sorry, we're going on this huge tangent, Julie, but I'm very curious and obsessed with coffee. I think it's so interesting how the tasting notes work. Like I was at a co-working space once that had two different brews and one of them had something like notes of peach and raisin. And I hated that one. And then there was one that was like <laughs> notes of caramel and dark chocolate and graham cracker. And that one was for me. <laughs> so it's funny how they have tasting notes that make sense like wine does. And I just learned that recently. Yeah. And like wine, you can lie and say that you can taste it Mm. or not. (laughs) No, I feel like it has a thing in wine where it's, or in coffee where you're told this has notes of this and this, and you're tasting it. I'm like, yes, but it does taste like coffee. (laughs) And these two coffees do taste different, but they're both somehow coffee flavored. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So can you tell us more about long distance? Yeah, I'm very excited about long distance. I moved to Canada from Portland to Vancouver Island about four years ago. And I had my first experience of what it's like to leave a best friend behind, even though I'm an adult. And so that was on my mind a lot. And also making friends in a new place where I don't go to school and I don't have a desk job. And where do I make friends as a 33-year-old woman, 30s at the time? I can't just like, walk up to people and say, hi, would you like to be my friend? I'm new in town. Like, oh, you can do that. You can do that. So this is like my thinking with this book. It's about a girl who has to move and leave her best friend behind. And she just thinks, I don't want any other friends. I have my friend We can talk on the internet, which is so funny that the pandemic happened. Now everybody's talking on the internet. And Mm -hmm. part of what's like a theme in the book is that you can be separated from your friends and still have a friendship with them because of all this technology that we have now. And it doesn't have to be quite as dramatic as it might have been in the past. 
And so now everybody's on Zoom and Hangouts and all these things that I was putting into the book before. I'm like, okay, this ended up being more relevant than I expected to more people. But yeah, the girl in the book, she doesn't want new friends and her parents think that's not exactly healthy to have one, just only one friend. So they get a brochure for a camp uh, about send your lonely loner kids here and they can all make (laughs) friends with each other. And her dads think, oh, this is it. So they sent her to the camp and the camp ends up being a lot weirder and strange and things start going wrong. And she has to end up teaming up with some people to figure out what's going on at this weird camp for lonely kids. Oh, sounds so good. (laughs) Yeah. Give away three copies. Absolutely. Uh, Our listeners, we always ask our guests to come up with a code word. Do you have a code word that we could use for the winners? So if the winners say blank. I was thinking telescope. Ooh. The main character in Long Distance, her name is Vega, and she has this sort of space obsession. She's like a little junior astronomer, and so her telescope's one of her most favorite things. Oh. So the first three people to write us an email, academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with telescope in the subject line, the first three will get a copy of Long Distance. And please try. I know everyone thinks that they go immediately, but actually a lot of people don't email us because they think they've already gone. So it's worth a try. We're always happy to hear from you. Whitney, is there anything else you can think of that we haven't asked you about that is super interesting and you'd like to talk about? I just think that more people should put illustrations in their books. How about that? I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Novels, picture books, all of them. Put pictures in everything. Oh, yeah. One of my clients did an unboxing today and her her novel has illustrations in it that are so beautiful. So yes, I agree. It absolutely makes a beautiful product. (laughs) Whitney, thank you so much. This was, it was really great to talk with you. Thank you for having me. And you can pick up a copy of Long Distance starting June 29th. We'll put links in the show notes. Thanks, everyone. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.